Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. In the summer of 1981, MTV, or music television, went on the air for the first time ever with the words spoken. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. The Buggles. Video killed the radio star. Was the first music video to air on the new cable station channel, which was initially only available to households in parts of New Jersey. MTV developed a reputation for pushing cultural boundaries and went on to revolutionize the music industry and became an influential source of pop culture and entertainment in the United States and around the world. As the record industry recognized MTV's value as a promotional vehicle, many were invested in making other kinds of creative cutting edge videos. And many of the directors who were originally involved went on to make major feature films. And in the 1980s, MTV was instrumental to promote the careers of performers like Madonna, Michael Jackson, Prince, Duran Duran, and many others, who knew it would launch so many careers of people who continue to produce great art. One such individual is our guest this evening. Robert Friedman, CEO of Bungalow Entertainment, is owned by a private equity, or is a private equity-backed entertainment and media company founded seven years ago. It develops produce and distributes content across all platforms. In fact, a most recent work that you can see is called Surviving Jeffrey Epstein. They stay on the cutting edge, creating all kinds of interesting art forms. And the best thing about it, and just like they did back in 1981, they get to make it all up. They get to take advantage of what's going on in the world and from a blank sheet of paper, create it into a piece of art that we can watch, that we can enjoy, that we can learn from. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest this evening is Bobby Friedman. Bobby, welcome to the show. You're a New Yorker, and that's just good to have you. But I think what I was leading with here, and I wonder how we can ultimately get into what was it like back at the time when we all for those of us who are old enough to know, we put on a record where we played a tape and something was created that we were able to hear. But you must have in your mind thought about music in a different medium or in a different way of consuming. What were you thinking about bringing to the marketplace where we didn't think of music that way? Well, there were, there, there were two things that were happening when we think back. I mean, and, and, and I can tell you, um, probably the, the benefit for many of us who went to the uh, initial launch of MTV, and I, I worked for a guy named Bob Pittman, um, one of the great things is we really didn't know much. Um, and as a result, we could take some chances. Um, prior to the launch of MTV, and MTV launched in 19, August of 1981, as, as you mentioned, um, to the Buggles song um, or video. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, until then, the media business was very different. Um, when, when you think back to, to that time, it's, I, I have to quote one of my greatest mentors in the world or people that I really looked at, Henry Ford, who says, you know, you can get a car in any color as long as it's black. If we think back to 1981, 
Um, I had just gotten out of business school and there were three broadcast networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS. Fox was just actually launching. And in the cable business, except for HBO and CNN, which had launched just a few years earlier, there was no such thing as cable. Um, so many of the things that happened with cable or cable programming were so new. For example, when you watched broadcast television at the time, it was one revenue stream. It was advertising. Um, we all thought, why not have two revenue streams? Why not charge a subscription fee, if you will, to actually get cable on television? So the cable operators were paying the film companies like the MTV and the networks and the, and the cable networks money. Um, so we had two revenue streams. That was number one. Number two, on a business level, in addition to the content, we did say, it's not a bad model. Um, we looked and thought about the other characters in the business and said, what do record companies have to do when there were things, for those who were listening, who don't know that there were things called records as opposed to digital downloads. We said, you know, not a bad idea. They have to promote their songs. We never knew these artists. Remember, the only time you would really know of an artist is if you saw it on broadcast television or you went to a concert. Um, um, and MTV, in an interesting sort of a way, just as a little bit of an aside, maybe killed the touring business for a while because you had seen these characters only when they toured and now you could see them on television. So the idea of being able to see people on television singing music was an interesting idea. But from a business standpoint, it was a great idea because we got our programming for free. What a notion. The record companies would develop and produce these videos for us. And we were basically getting free programming, charging advertisers, not a lot in the very beginning, and cable operators to get this service. So the margin on a business like MTV, uh, where we were all very young, some had come from radio, I had basically come from advertising and marketing at the time, um, was just an amazing, amazing idea, in addition to creating sort of a new visual medium. And at the time, many of us sat there and said, for music, uh, the beauty of cable was it was so demographically targeted that for 18 to 34 year olds at the time, it wasn't just all music because jazz may have been for you, Chuck, um, whereas pop may have been for someone else. Rock and roll, we developed MTV and we did stuff around rock and roll because we knew we could over deliver an audience. And remember, over delivering an audience meant that we could get a two rating as opposed to at the time, a 14 rating on television and create a premium, if you will, for advertisers to pay because they were really reaching the people that they wanted. And that's hard to imagine today with the proliferation of streaming services and other digital media. Yeah, well, you had to, you know, you came in as a disruptor and, and I want to ultimately relate that to the modern world because I think there's a lot of lessons here. You had to think about the art in itself, but to the band, was this a blessing or a curse? The fact that they were now on television where we formerly used to pay a ticket fee to watch them on stage. Well, this was a blessing for the artists in a lot of ways. Um, ultimately, we had tremendous reach. Um, like radio at the time, um, you know, we were able to reach almost you know, 100 million households at the end of the day. Having said that, um, we think that some of the appeal for some of these artists, particularly new artists, was not just what they sang, but what they did. I mean, if you remember, Madonna, um, if you remember uh, Michael Jackson, and you remember the videos that came out for these artists, it sort of gave them a better 
um, there was a, a different frame of reference, if you will, that wasn't just the song or their voice or the lyrics. And it actually, we believe, increased their shelf life. Well, I remember, and I seem to remember like a virgin, there was a, there was a provocative notion to that. And you guys went with it. And I remember the amount of the groundswell of criticism that, <laughs> oh, my God, you're really pushing the envelope here. Were there any lessons learned out of that? Good, bad, yeah. or otherwise? There were a lot of lessons that, that we learned at MTV. First of all, it was probably the first um, on a marketing level, direct to the consumer appeal. Remember, we were selling MTV to cable operators around the country. The average age, give or take, of those cable operators who got very wealthy um, initially by just stringing cable in their neighborhoods was probably 60 or 65 years old. Try talking at the time, because 65, thank God, is now like 40 today. <laughs> but try talking to a 65-year-old Chuck and saying, here's rock and roll, here are these wild images, when they were negotiating with you saying, we only want to pay you X amount to carry MTV. And then some of them, as you know, dropped MTV. So we went direct to the consumer and said, demand your MTV. I want my MTV. Right. If you remember the George Lois campaign, I want my Mapo. So we went direct to an audience. That was unheard of to say, get it back. So one of the lessons was, if you can try to eliminate the middleman. And it's interesting, <laughs> that's happened a lot right now with digital media. So here you came along as a disruptor. One of the things that we talked about in our prep call was the importance of providing a roadmap for the future, particularly for your business. Before we get there, can you talk about when you came in with MTV, did the success just happen or were there roadblocks and obstacles that you learned along the way that could be lessons for our listeners if they're thinking about coming in with something new? Sure. I think probably the primary roadblock was distribution, which is, at least in the past, um, was probably the major obstacle for almost all media. Who would carry you? Who wouldn't carry you? Um, what was going on in the marketplace? Some people thought of rock and roll as they did in the 50s as heresy. Um, and, and just, you know, just like with all types of music, um, there, were, there were hurdles that we had to, um, to get over. Um, and then the second thing was, was really convincing the advertising community, um, which was 50%, if you will, of the revenue that came. Um, because when MTV first launched in 1981, it was not available in New York. So turning to an advertising executive and saying, hey, you should be buying MTV for your client when they really didn't see it was unheard of. And as you mentioned, Chuck, um, we were only available in a few number of homes. The, the, the turning point, if you will, um, on that climb to the top of the mountain, <laughs> really 1983 with the Michael Jackson video, when MTV launched in New York, um, because it wasn't just the consumer launch that mattered, it was the B2B. It was being able to turn to an advertiser, to a Pepsi or a Coke and saying, here's a really good medium for you to use. Just like the cable services that are not available on your um, network now, yeah. you really have no idea when someone talks about their product. So that was number one. The second thing was, and I'm gonna get back to this a little bit later, is um, the positioning of MTV. It was really key, it was really important, and people thought, is this just a fad? Um, and you know we're, we're talking almost 40 years ago, so clearly it wasn't a fad, albeit it changed. Right. But the positioning from MTV allowed it to change. And then the last thing was, um, how do we keep the competition at bay? Because right. um, it was a first. 
And when you're the first into the market and an early mover, um, how do you keep the other folks out? Uh, and we weren't paying the record labels for their content. Um, this was a pure promotional vehicle um, where the artists weren't making money. They thought of this like radio to promote the sale of their album at right. the time. Um, so clearly we had to change things. And I remember, it's funny, um, something that we did um, in order to pay them, because Ted Turner, who I ultimately worked for when I ran New Line Cinema, was co-chairman of New Line, he launched a cable music channel called the Cable Music Channel um, after we had launched ours. But his was music for everyone. We kept saying to ourselves, will this really hurt us? on two levels. One, will it hurt us in terms of distribution? Will he undercut us to the cable operator to carry it? Because they probably wouldn't carry two music channels. And then on the consumer basis, what did it matter? And we thought we were the early players, like he was with CNN in the cable business. He's, we said, if we can make people passionate about what we're playing, we would have a better chance for survival. And it would be difficult to be passionate about all types of music. This was not broadcast television. This was a targeted distribution means. Right, and I think that's a great lesson because you had the ability, you didn't try to be all things, the niches or the riches were in the niches. And so you looked at it, but ultimately, and I wanna to get to Bungalow Media, sure. you learned a lot about the development of the business and production, but what did you learn yourself along the way that caused you to wanna to do and create Bungalow Media? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny you say that. I never really wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, hmm. I, I loved big companies. I worked at MTV. MTV was sold, was a joint venture to begin with Warner Amex, so two big companies. Yep. Uh, then it was sold to, at the time, Viacom, which became Viacom. Right. Um, and then um, I worked at New Line Cinema. I started the television company in 1990 because the smaller studios didn't have television. They were only making movies. And then I ended up as co-chair of, uh, of the film side. Um, and then I uh, took some companies, Golden Books, if you remember, um, with some private equity folks, but you know that was a sort of a big company and then Radical Media. So right. I was never um, in the entrepreneurial space and I was kind of good in companies. Um, I loved mentors. Um, I was very fortunate to work for some, for some great folks. Um, and I ended up at some point, uh, interestingly, sort of made that jump. Um, I, we had sold Radical Media, um, the company, um, we made Mad Men and we made Iconoclast and a bunch of other sort of innovative content products as an independent. We sold it to a company named Freeman, so a big German company, Bertelsmann. Yep. Um, and I left, um, you know, two years into after the sale. And I was trying to decide, do I go to work for another big company as a CEO? Um, and there were definitely great trappings, particularly in the media days then, you know, everyone had a plane or access to a plane. Um, it was great using someone else's money. You were the, you know, you were the powerhouse in a market. You saw every deal that existed. Right. And I remember turning to one of my mentors in the business who had run CBS, Jeff Sagansky, uh, who just is one of the primary investors in DraftKings recently. He had run CBS. He had run Columbia TriStar. And, you know, he said to me, do you want to run my companies? I have a bunch of content companies. I said, you know, Jeff, if I'm going to do that, I may as well do my own thing. Right. And he said to me, I'm going to invest in you to do your own thing. This was five years ago or so. And it really made me pause for thought. Um, I was scared to death to do my own thing. Um, but then I looked back and I thought about the companies that I had been at. And though they were big companies, we were always the entrepreneurs uh, in those companies. So with MTV, 
it speaks for itself. It was clearly a new medium. At New Line, everything that we did, we did with a different kind of discipline. We created franchises, which the movie studios really weren't doing unless it was Superman, whether it was Freddy Krueger, Austin Powers, Lord of the Rings, uh, Rush Hour. Um, and we did things very, very differently. Why? In part, because we were New York based, um, which meant that the guy who had founded New Line really was like a, I want to call him a bad boy, um, but he really thought outside of the traditional Hollywood box. Um, so there we thought very differently. Um, and all of the companies I've been at, um, we did things very, very differently. So for me to do this, it kind of made sense um, in having the experience, having the relationships. And I'll tell you, you know, I've never really screwed anyone in business. So I have the same relationships that I've always had. Right. Uh, so I decided to try my own thing and do it on my terms. But the difference here is you said yes to the thing that scared you, but in reality, were you just doing what you did at the other ones, only now it's yours? Yes, Yeah. Uh, it is true. Um, but, but remember, when you're at a big company or at a big studio and people, whatever the business is, um, whether it's the food business or the hospitality business, the amount of resources that you have that just happen over time, we started at New Line with 40 people. We had 450 when I left. Um, when you were at Time Warner, uh, and then following Time Warner, when AOL bought us, I became the president of AOL. My first day at AOL, I had to let go 2,500 people. I didn't even know the company. So now you're in a company a that you, that you, that's a startup you're recreating, forgetting even the planes. You don't have the resources, if you will, um, and you can't be lazy, and you have to be hungry, and you're spending the same time with the same 10 people every day. Um, so it's just a very different experience. Uh, and to answer your question, I wish I'd done it 10 years. <laughs> you wish I'd done it so well. I, I wanna get to some of the key lessons and takeaways for, for all our listeners, but first let's put Bungalow Media into perspective. What do you guys do and what can we see today that is produced by Bungalow? Sure, so at Bungalow, um, I, I, I made a very disciplined uh, business plan. Um, so that there are things um, that don't make up the bulk of what we're trying to do in terms of content creation, because I don't think they're necessarily good businesses for an independent. Um, having said that, um, about 75% of what we do is in the documentary world. Um, and um, it, that documentary world contains things that are specials or four-part mini-series, um, which very often are about important things, which is in, in, important to me. It happen, happens to be an area that is very, I'll use the word hot right now, but in demand. So in the last year, we produced the Panama Papers uh, for pay television, which was a mini series uh, about how the um, uh, journalists were able for two and a half years to keep a secret. It's an amazing story about what was going on with the illegal offshore financing of companies and, and high finance. Um, we then uh, later in the year did uh, the Preppy Murder. Um, the Preppy Murder, for those of you who remember, is a story in the late 80s. We did that for a woman's network lifetime. And we did it in a way that was very different, that was very filmic with two women uh, directors. Um, that was the story, but we, and there had been feature films with Alex Baldwin, there had been series on HBO, but we did it through the lens of women and what, um, this poor woman who died in Central Park, we told that story through that lens, as opposed to the preppy murder, if you remember in 1989 was Chambers, he was on the front of every, um, 
um, magazine, but it really changed the way that people thought about um, uh, women um, and how they um, had to live and how they called her loose and a whore because she had had sex in Central Park. So it was a very important story uh, to be told. But um, was, was the importance for you, now that it was your company, you had the independence, did you want to tell it from a lens that previously had not been told? Yes, we wanted to tell it with a lens that had not previously been told right. and we wanted to do it with a partner that would support the way in which we would tell it, which looking back was the advent of cable with these targeted uh, networks. Um, and, the, and the program itself and the series was greenlit um, with that in mind. And we just delivered um, the Epstein series, which is another interesting story. Um, and again, we really want to tell it in a very different way than the Netflix story. Um, that was being told, which was good. Yeah. Um, but we told this through that lens and we did it with the Lifetime Network because they were very anxious in affecting change as a result of their programming because they're targeted primarily to women. Um, we've and, also, and it, even yeah. the title of, of what you guys produce, Surviving, you know, you're leading with that. I think that there's a very visceral reaction to what we read in the newspapers about the horrific, the despicable event but you must have and, and, and told it from, you chose to take that angle so that we could feel that while we may not always relate to the stories that you tell, we find them compelling and powerful and we take something from them. Is that a fair statement, even on the Epstein series? That's a fair, that, that's a, and you said it more articulately than I could ever <laughs> say it. Um, but, but yeah, these are important stories and, and and as a matter of fact, there are examples of stories that if not for the journalists, I would include the filmmakers, um, the networks, the lawyers who stood by these survivors in terms of this kind of a story, it's possible this story may never have been told and that behavior since, 19, since 2005 could have continued because of the wealth and power uh, of this person, Jeffrey Epstein. Right. So, uh, the media, so those, those important stories, if you will, are important to us. Right. Other stories um, that we've told, because we're in the format business as well, um, we just delivered um, in the middle of COVID, which is not easy, um, we just delivered the series Roswell, uh, mm -hmm. based on the Roswell uh, controversy. Um, we're, we're telling it in a very different way based on some new evidence. It's for the History uh, Network. Um, and, and, and we think it's, it, it's, it's a great story, one that's been told in different ways. Um, um, so, so we're really proud of that. We also um, are developing a bunch of, um, if you will, fun stuff in this space, um, stuff that's a little lighter, um, that can go on for 50 episodes or so. Right. And the other thing we did at Bungalow, to, to, to get to your, to your original question, which was different, was we try to create a company that was also gonna be successful and a good business model. So things that were underserved was branded content. Um, branded content means with the high cost of content, weren't advertisers and aren't advertisers gonna be funding, if you will, content in different ways. So clearly um, we had done an iconoclast when I was at Radical Media, um, which was an amazing series on the Sundance Network that brought Grey Goose in to actually fund it. We did something called Game Killers on MTV Networks, which was, you know, guys trying to kill, very targeted, guys game. And it was brought to you by Unilever, who had Axe, the, the new deodorant that they were, were launching. 
We yeah. did um, Oprah's um, commercial um, uh, on uh, Weight Watchers with I Eat Bread, which we've, we've all seen a lot of because I had done Oprah's series uh, masterclass um, uh, pr prior to this. So we picked these areas, um, including um, English speaking Hispanic, which clearly represents 40% of the audience in America. Um, so it's stuff that would make for a good business model. And every once in a while, we would do things for other reasons. So we did a Clive Owens film um, um, that, that we put out into the market called The Confirmation, um, because we thought that that could add value um, to our brand. Um, right now, Modern Love, um, um, that was developed um, with my former partner, um, um, is, is on Amazon going into a second season. So it's an array of stuff, but it's not that loose. Having said that, I do believe in passion. And I do believe when someone on my team comes to me and says, I'd love to tell this story. It's a little bit outside of the strategy or the comfort zone, if you will, of what we bring to it. Um, more likely than not, we will pursue that because some of those things you never know are just amazingly successful. Well, I love that. In fact, in the time remaining, I want to convert that a little bit into the call to action. We have so many listeners who are considering forming sure. their own company, joining something, and most of what I'm finding about the generation that's coming up now, tremendous idealism. Want to make the world a better place. What we try to encourage on this show is we appreciate you want to change the world, but the first thing you're going to have to do is to change yourself because only in the change of yourself can you bring to guys like you here is a project we're passionate about. What would you like our listeners, if they were in your position, wherever that may be, and they have the opportunity to do things that are important to them, what do you want them to think, feel, or even do about the possibilities that are ahead of them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I started this discussion talking about brands because I worked on some of the most successful brands in the world. Right. And, you know, a great brand positioning is one that never changes. Um, so, for example, if you were Avis and you tried harder when you were number two, you should always try harder. Right. Nickelodeon, which I worked on with MTV, was we versus they, kids versus parents. It wasn't PBS or Channel 2 for kids programming. Entertainment brands have positionings too. Austin Powers was an underdog spy. So we worked with, um, 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 with an airline at the time, um, Virgin Airlines. Um, we worked with them because they were an underdog airline. He was an underdog spy, despite the fact that American Airlines was number one. People are products themselves. Great. And before you attempt to do anything, you really better understand what you are, not for yourself, okay? Like these brands are for the consumers. You have to figure out what you really represent to the people that you're either interacting with or doing business. And I would recommend that people come up with their own brand positioning for themselves. Because what I think I may be is not the way I'm viewed. And if you want to get stuff done, you better align your expectation of a personal brand positioning um, to be able to effectuate change on sort of the go forward. And I've always done that. Um, I know what I'm good at. It's influenced and, and um, it's, it's informed who I hire, who's a compliment to me, not someone who's like me. Um, and on a personal basis, um, it's also done that I've been married for um, over 35 years to someone who is a perfect compliment. And everyone's first thing is, how could you guys be married? You're, you're so different. 
Um, but I think that self-introspection before you try to do anything is the most important. Well, that's a phenomenon. And on that high note, we're going to leave that leave, leave it there. Uh, Bob, thank you so much. You have listened to a climb to the top stories of transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening was Bob Freeman of Bungalow Entertainment. You can reach us on my website at chuckgarcia.com. Just hit the contact tab. You can also email me at chuck at climbleadership.com. Let us know how we're doing. If you have a guest or a story that you think is powerful and compelling and speaks to the heart of your personal transformation, we would love to hear from you. Bob, thank you so much for coming on and contributing to a climb to the top. It was a pleasure to collaborate with you today. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. It's been great being here. You bet. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.